Hey, this is BT Wolf, and you're listening to Orange Juice for the Ears on Dub Lab. And today I'm joined by former Black Flag frontman, actor, presenter, comedian, journalist, and all round force, Henry Rollins. Henry, thank you so much for making the time. No problem. Henry's tenure as lead vocalist of LA's hardcore group Black Flag made him one of the most recognizable faces in 80s punk scene. And he's since gone on to extend this into other forums and fields, becoming equally well-known for his non-musical endeavors. These include establishing a publishing house, winning a Grammy for Best Spoken Word album, hosting a radio show, and acting in a number of films and TV shows from experimental to mainstream. But all the while, with seemingly ceaseless energy, Henry continues to create, curate, innovate, assimilate, never resting on his laurels as a true Renaissance artist and thinker. So Henry, it was such a great pleasure you know, to meet you actually just before everything got crazy um, at the Dub Lab Salon where you were, you know, guest of honor and I was um, comparing. And that was what, like a few days before everything shut down? Yeah, it was a, a, a maskless event. And if you looked at photos from that evening and said, oh, that was last weekend, people would be going, oh no, you're all in trouble. So everything has changed. I think that's the probably the last time i was around people in a, in a gathering of more than one like one or two unless i'm at the grocery store or something and certainly the last time i was out without a mask on so yeah it's and it's not that long ago so things are really different now and it's it's kind of interesting to think at that occasion um you know obviously there was the awareness that you know we had this kind of pandemic but even just it being a hundred people, that felt like a tiny number. Whereas now, you know, even like two people is kind of crazy. So just that, the change in perception, you know, I think the the fact we've all spent so much time on our own, um, how has that been for you? It's been, it's been good and bad. I mean, I, I have learned perhaps through touring, you know, living, playing the away game, if you will, that one must adapt quickly Otherwise, you're just going to have a really bad day. And so I realized very quickly, well, I'm going to be at the house a lot as I watched every show I had for 2020 cancel. All my travel plans cancel. Every, you know, Everything that had me leaving LA, going somewhere interesting, it was over in like a few, a few awful emails. I went, okay, I'm here. And what am I going to do? Lie around, you know, crying? I, I can't do that. So I have to find a hundred things to do, like today. And so I just started working on lots of stuff I have here. And that was how, I don't know, I forget now how many months we've been in this damn thing. But I'm doing the best I can to keep putting things over, like putting up, you know, by the end of the day, having something accomplished. Because so many of my options that I used to take for granted, like going to get a cup of coffee and getting out of my house for a while, that's kind of over with for now or maybe forever. And so I'm doing my best to stay positive. And, you know, as a human will do, I've got good days and bad days. But luckily, I've got like a, 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 a small gym 
at my house. And so I can get the sweat going and the heart rate up, which has been very, very good to me. Uh, it's been, you know, good, good for my mental state. So, uh, I spend quite a bit of time on the treadmill or on the stationary bike and I've got music and, uh, a workload that that's fluid. I can work 20 hours a day, two hours a day. It just needs to get done. So I'm doing the best I can. And you talk about, you know, at the end of the day, you always like to put something on the board. What will you be putting on the board today? Well, today I'm going to be doing a lot of uh, some radio work, which is constant because I have two radio shows and you have a radio show and it's never over. I mean, you're always working on it or planning one or executing one. So I'll be working on that. But uh, this this day happens to be an interesting day. Um, it's, it's the fourth anniversary of the death of the great Alan Vega of the band Suicide. And so he was a longtime pal of mine. He's one of my great music heroes. So I'm going to be spending the evening listening to some of his music and writing about him. Uh, for uh, my endless uh, uh, string of music books that I put out like once a year. And so I'll be uh, kind of in the, you know, just hanging out with Alan Vega, you know, and taking uh, stock of his great output on on this kind of uh, sad day. Nice. Um, well, you know, the nature of this show, Orange Juice for the Years, um, is really looking at some of the music that makes up your DNA. Uh, and the title comes from a, a line from Oliver Sacks from the book Musicophilia about the power of music and how deep it really goes. Um, and the line is, music can lift us out of a depression or move us to tears. It is a remedy, a tonic, an orange juice for the ear. Uh, and I just want to know, what does that quote mean to you? I agree a hundred percent. I mean, I, I've, you've been to my place. I, I have a, there's a lot of music in here. You can't look in any direction in any room in my house without seeing a music referenced thing, be it a stereo system or a music related thing on the wall, you know, like music poster framed or something. And so I spend a lot of time with books and music and not a lot of TV or you know, social interaction necessarily. I'm not going out to parties or whatever. And so music from the about age six to now, it's a constant. Like there's rarely does a day go by when I don't have, have played something. And I, I refuse to medicate and being kind of a gloomy type music is what I use to get, if I'm really feeling bad, you, well, you just put the right record on. And you're like, wow, that was, that was incredible. Feels, you know, you, you get better. And so music is a real tonic. It, it really is orange juice for the year. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful quote. I agree wholeheartedly. Wonderful. And what else is a tonic in your life? Well, for me, uh, physical fitness, you know, a, a chance to expend energy, get a sweat going, kind of letting the body get furious, you know, getting out of breath. Uh, it just um, maybe just like, uh, like blows out all the clogged uh, pipes in your system. And so uh, physical fitness, or at least, you know, working out, uh, like anything where I can get out, you know, the heart rate up, that's been really beneficial for me. And I've been using that as a mood elevator uh, for many, many years. So uh, access to exercise 
uh, is a big, big deal for me. Again, it's I like to keep in shape and all of that, but it's it's to to be to to maintain a level of in scuba diving they they call it uh, uh, buoyancy neutral, where you're just floating, where you're not going up or down. You have your air just right, and you just kind of float. Um, that's what I try and be. I don't need to be really happy. I don't want to feel bad. Feeling okay is is an accomplishment for me. And so I balance, I try and be buoyancy neutral, diet, fitness, music, and trying to be doing something. A mood elevator for me is accomplishment, like getting something done. Like, you know, there's a deadlines, whatever, like eh, it's, it's due in a week. Screw it. Let's just do it tonight and you just get things done. That That's very, very good for me. So, Henry, I have to ask, what was the first song that imprinted on you? Well, uh, I was raised a single child in Washington, D.C. None of that really matters. But I, I was really into being in my room because I, I didn't get along well with others. And I didn't have a TV in there. And I wasn't really much on watching. My mom gave me a record player. So records were a big deal for me. And my little General Electric record player, if you hit the right switch, you would just play one side over and over again, which I didn't mind. And I would put on one side of a record I liked and just listen for hours because it was someone in the room with me hanging out with me. And a big band for me as a kid and and now uh, uh, was and is the Beatles. The music's exceptional. And a song that imprinted on me was a song called Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite, which I believe is on uh, 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 Sergeant Pepper. And it, it just describes a party, this amazing event, and I get to be there. And the music is really weird, and I had it in my mind, and I didn't know anything about radio or what's popular. Like, no one likes this song but me. Maybe they wrote it for me. And I didn't really take that thought too far, but this is an odd song, and I'm odd. And there's a guy in the song named Henry the Horse. I'm like, wow, okay. And even to this day, I still think it's a really, really cool song. Like, what were you guys thinking? Like, was it drug-induced? In a way, it's very psychedelic. So that song really did a number on me when I was young, I just I would just play it over and over again. It would just make me very happy. Okay, perfect. So with that in mind, we're going to take a listen to Being for the Benefit of Mr. Kite by the Beatles. The Hendersons will dance and sing as Mr. Kite flies through the ring. Don't be late. Let us K and H assure the public their production will be second to none. And of course, Henry the Horse dances the waltz. And that was being for the benefit of Mr. Kite by the Beatles. Um, and that was Henry Rollins's choice for the first song that imprinted on him. Age, were you six? Something like that. Really, really young. I mean, I'm too old to remember now. Six, seven, eight, somewhere in there. Uh, I forget when that album came out. I, I was born in 61. And my mother would buy me Beatles records. I mean, I, I, I got Abbey Road when it came out. My mom gave it to me as a birthday present. And so the Beatles were, they were friendly. I thought they were, you know, I don't know how you were raised, but there's kids' records, like records for little kids. 
and like Burl Ives, you know, whoever makes songs for children. I had a few of those records where you can, you know, you sing along or whatever. I thought the I thought Beatles records were like were those records. My mom got it for me. It must be a record for little kids. I didn't really understand that adults listened to the Beatles. Uh, so I, I thought the Beatles were friendly and they, they didn't yell and they, their faces looked friendly, especially Ringo. Maybe it's the sideburns. And um, I, they became like my, my, my friends who I never met. And so that was, a, that was a big deal for me. It was like having adults around me who were not mean or threatening to me because a lot of adults in my life at that time were threatening to me. And I'm a little skinny little kid. There's, what am I going to do? And so uh, the, the music was a way to, to deal with people and not have it be a really dreadful event. So you were, you were born in D.C., Washington, D.C., um, and you said you were raised by your mother. Um, so your, your parents, did they split up when you were very young? Or? The, they, my parents divorced. I think they got married for appearances' sake because of me and they were divorced almost immediately upon my arrival and so i spent my young years as far as spending time with them five days a week with my mom and that's where i lived and then i'd go to my father's place on the weekend which is probably some divorce court agreement and so i'd go live on earth too <laughs> for the weekend with my dad, he'd pick me up like on a Friday night and I'd be back home by Sunday afternoon, late afternoon, something like that, for many years. And there's no music at his place, like no music. One radio in the kitchen, you know, news radio, uh, but no record player on the radio in the car. It was news, sports. And so my mom's place was walls of books, uh, art on the walls, lots of records, and re a record was on the turntable almost nonstop. So like it was just music, 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 lots of classical show tunes like Barbara Streisand, Bartok, Stravinsky, uh, Brahms, Beethoven, Chopin, uh, Glenn Campbell, you know, whatever. And so I liked the music and the, the art stuff and my dad's kind of more spartan environment <laughs> it wasn't nearly as fun and did not inspire the imagination and it was you know kind of terrifying too and what were you like as a kid how were you how were you spending your time i, I was really horrible um you know very hyperactive prone to crying uh could not socialize with other kids like i you know Who's the one who broke this? And that was Henry. Who's the one who bit the other kid? Well, and that was me. And they have to call you know, Iris. You know, you got to pick up your son from the birthday party. He just attacked the birthday boy. <laughs> I have no memory of why. And I, so I was really horrible and, you know, inexcusable behavior. And I wasn't trying to be bad. I just was, you know, crazy. And so as an adult, I look back on it and it must have been so difficult for my parents who were both super hardworking and very busy with their careers. And then you have this child who is this like unending needy thing. 
I think, you know, children have needs, of course, but I was, you know, just a wreck. And so uh, there's no stability. I did not play well with others. And we found eventually, eh, let, let him just give him records and put him in his room because there'll be less, uh, you know, threatening phone calls from the school or an angry parent or, you know, something. And so uh, I look back on my days as a child and just kind of cringe for what I put everyone through. But also you were saying that, you know, you knew adults as, as hostile, or, I don't know, violent or just dangerous. Um, so then would you say that, you know, it's the chicken and egg situation. Were you difficult because of that or, you know, or did that come after you were already difficult? Um, probably all of it at once. I mean, you know, hyperactive, you know, no attention span whatsoever you know, very high energy, you know, running around all the time. Um, so there's that. And then my mom you know, made some really bad choices with boyfriends. I mean, if she's still around, I'm, I'm sure she would not disagree with me because, you know, the breakups were really gnarly. But the men she dated really didn't like kids or they didn't like me. And so that made things really scary you know when a, when an adult who you don't really know is physically abusive like when they hit you or whatever else or tell you things like i unrepeatable it's just not it's not won't do you any good to hear what was said to me by adults uh but and so i don't have a father i can confide in so i'll just inhale all of this it was like swallowing a hand grenade. You pull the pin and you just like swallow it and just kind of blow the smoke ring out of your mouth of like, you know, as your guts are being blown up. And so I, I was uh, a lot of in intake, like a lot of input into my young life without a way to really push it out. And that could have been where some of the violence towards other kids and things came from. Like, you know, inhale, exhale, where it comes out all screwed up because, you know, bad ingredients are going in. And that was that describes my life for many, many years. And it was only as an adult kind of thinking back on it, like, wow, that was a long time. And, you know, I never told my mom what was going on or my dad or anybody. I just figured you just took it, which is an odd reaction, isn't it? Kids would, you'd figure they would just tell everything to everybody. But for some reason, I internalized it like I was CIA, <laughs> and it was classified. And that's where, you know, music was such a big deal for me, because you'd put a record on, or the radio. I loved FM radio, because the guy would talk to you between songs, like, oh, okay, listen to Casey Kasem, all those people. And, you know, I, I when I saw American Graffiti as a kid, uh, there's that great cameo Wolfman Jack makes. It's a great movie, if you've never seen it, really fun. And I, I watched that cameo of, of uh, Wolfman Jack. I'm like, that's what I want to do. And I wanted to have a radio show since I was like in sixth grade or something. Yeah, basically, I think everything you've shared, it's like if uh, if you if you are on the receiving end of that kind of behavior, it's like you don't also really know anything else. And there's no security. And kids are so used to blaming themselves and internalizing that shame and all of that. So... Um, yeah, I think, you know, I, I think it's amazing you're, uh, you're as 
balanced and normal, not to use that word, but to use that word in the best possible way. Um, I strive for it. You know, I I strive for, so I want to, I'm a, at the end of the day, I try to be a go along, get along type. Yeah, I I don't want to be a a drag to anybody or uh, not part of a solution. And I, you know, have good days and bad days. I'm sure there's a, a few bridges I'll never be able to unburn from things I've said. But um, uh, that's that's my life, and uh, it took. But it, it took me a, a many many years to understand how impactful all that had been. Because when you're in the middle of it, it's just your life, and uh, years later you can kind of look back at the wreckage and go, "Wow, man, that that was that was a drag." So you know things are better now, but um, those early years in printed upon me indelibly where I'm still trying to kind of uh, find the right wire to clip so the damn thing doesn't explode. So on that note, what was the first album that shaped who you are and had a big impact? It, it was a an album that was recorded about 10 minutes from where I'm sitting right now in 1970 called Funhouse by the Stooges. And when I, I joined a, a band called Black Flag in the summer of 1981, and at one point, one of the elders in the band said, look, if you want to understand where this band is coming from, you better upload the Stooges and Black Sabbath. Like, just know this music. And one of them put me in the van. I think we're in the afternoon at some show when I was still roadieing and learning the ropes. They said, here's the album Funhouse. Put it on, listen and get it so you know and they left me alone so i I, i'm sitting in the front of the van and i put in funhouse on some worn out cassette and it was like hearing it wasn't exactly like hearing music for the first time it was like hearing it's like hearing carbon you're like oh water gravity it was essential and i and there's so many records at that point that I loved, you know, that I had a little record collection and lived for these records that I had. But when I heard Funhouse, I was like, oh, it all comes from this somehow. And I'm never going to do anything as pure or real as this because this is real and I'm not. Yeah, I'm not. This is so real. Everything else is kind of a put on in comparison. And so... Uh, that record really did a number on me. And there's a, the first song on the record is called Down on the Street. And if you listen to it one way, it's very, very simple. But if you try and be in a band and pay attention to the rhythm, the rhythm section, you, you come to respect the song Down on the Street for this rhythmic perfection that is just a perfectly formed statue from a single chunk of marble. It is just an astounding few minutes of music. And so um, Funhouse from that day to now is still one of those records. I don't play that often because it's just too heavy a thing. I just don't need that much purity and truth and awesomeness at once. Thank you very much. And so uh, without a doubt, it would be Funhouse. Perfect. Let's take a listen to Down on the Street by the Stooges from the record Funhouse. Down on the street where the 
And that was Down on the Street by the Stooges from Funhouse. Um, and that was the, the record that Henry Rollins would choose as the first album that really had a big impact um, and shaped who he is. And so you were saying that, you know, that was really from, uh, that was kind of your like, not apprenticeship, but that was listening material ahead of you joining Black Flag. Yeah. And it, it wasn't exactly a blueprint because you're never going to copy it. And, I, and I'm not looking to emulate. But as far as what I think one of the jobs of rock music, and this is just my opinion, it can do anything it wants, anything you want it to do as well. But there should be a considerable lack of restraint now and then. It's just music. I mean, it's not like you're you know, driving a car into a, a wall. It's just music. So maybe with art, you there can be a complete lack of restraint or just a, a cutting loose of expression that really allows others to be liberated by it, where you can put a record on and your life gets better because the band is going for it so hard and so freely with so much, you know, in this case of the Stooges, feral genius, as I, I call them, the hyenas, uh, the masters of the Serengeti. Um, it allows you to get some some calories from it where you get a little braver. You know, like if you're in high school and you're vulnerable, you feel bad, you put on the right music before you go into class. You're like, all right, I'm... I'm ready. <laughs> I, I did that all the time, getting ready to go to school, I, which I hated. And I'd put on music before I'd go to the school bus and, you know, have to go out to that, that place every day. And music was a big, big thing that got me through high school. It wasn't, you know, books I read. It wasn't, you know, the parental advice. It was Zeppelin, you know, it, it was like hard rock. And during high school, you you formed um, SOA. Was that your first band or had you been making music before then? Like, just tell me a little bit about, you know, the progression from like Henry, you know, this kid that was obvi obviously absorbing so much music to then thinking, you know, I want to I want to sort of have an outlet for this energy. Well, I was fairly fresh out of high school. And I was in the microscopic Washington, D.C. music scene. And my best friend, Ian Mackay, had his first band going called the Teen Idols, I-D-L-E-S, first record ever on Discord. And being Ian's pal, I'd, I'd be at pretty much every band practice, every show if I didn't have to work. And I'd carry the equipment. I was kind of like, you know, the road crew guy, just but, you know, a friend of the band. And so I'm at every show I can go to, and every show I could go to in that amazing music scene. And I never thought of being in a band at that time. I just knew that I had no fear of being on stage. Like that's just, I have a lot of hangups and a lot of fears, but being on stage with that just wouldn't have been one of them. And one night the Bad Brains, the great DC band are, are playing a house party and I'm standing right in front of them. And HR between songs looks at me and he said, Henry, you're a singer. And I went, oh, no, I'm just, you know, I, I, I just laughed. And he, he said, and tonight you're singing with the Bad Brains. And he grabbed me and put me up on stage, which was like about one foot high. And he gave me the mic. And he stood where I was standing a second ago, crossed his arms, and just glared at me like, go. And I, you know, I know the band. I kind of know the song. So I just called out for one of their more 
dealable mid-tempo numbers. And the band went, okay, it's just a house party. Who cares? So I sang that song. And then I sang another. And, you know, I'm no gift to singing, of course. But I, it was immediately clear that this felt really like you, a fish finally dropped in water. Like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to do. And so I gave the mic back to HR and he looked at me, he said, see, you're a singer. And I don't know, a couple of months later, I was in a band and it was a, a kind of a pre-existing band that was losing their singer who was about to pick up guitar and be part of some band called Minor Threat. What did they ever get up to? And so this pre-existing band needed a new singer because Lyle went on to become the guitar player in Minor Threat. And so I said, well, I'll be in your band. And they went, well, okay, you're crazy. And so that was our little band state of alert. And we, you know, played like nine or 10 shows. Our songs were like 45 to 65 seconds long. And you, you hear them, they're nothing to write home about, but we had a good time. And you learn, you know, show up for band practice. There's expenses. You got to buy gear. You got to get the drummer to show up. I mean, all that, you know, stuff. And you play a few shows and you, a few people go, Hey, I like you. And you're like, Whoa. And you make a record. And we did all that. And then a few months after that, uh, Black Flag, who I kind of knew, said, hey, we're auditioning singers. You're a lunatic. You want to audition? You know, I'm working a minimum wage job in Washington, D.C. I'm 20. I got my future is going to be holding an ice cream scoop, I guess. And so I said, yeah, I'll audition. Like, what do I have to lose? And so I auditioned. They went, okay, you're in. And days later, I, I packed a duffel bag, had given away many of my possessions, quit my job, and I got on a Greyhound bus and went overnight from Washington, D.C. to Detroit, Michigan. And within three weeks, I'm in Los Angeles, uh, about five traffic lights from where I'm sitting now, which is odd. And, um, you know, here I am now after many records and shows and, you know, wear and tear to psyche and body. And so it, I never thought I was a natural. All I knew was the way I'm designed, being in front of a band, being on stage, there was never, I never had a nervous moment in my life uh, being, you know, in front of two people or 20,000 people or 150,000 people. It's never, it's never caused me a moment of trepidation. And, and don't, misunderstand that to think i think i'm something great i'm just one of those needy people who like put me in front of a, an audience with and give me a microphone and good good for me hooray maybe hopefully it's good for you um but then if you were to say henry some friends and i are getting together to go eat dinner why don't you come out with us like that's going to happen anytime soon um that would be where i would have a an immense amount of difficulty coming up with an excuse as to why I can't make it. Because I really, you know, I like you just fine, but I really can't sit in those situations all that easily. But put me on stage tonight? Sure, I'll go. Um, but go to the rap party after the film is over? I'd, I'd rather not. I, I mean no ill intent. I just, I just don't handle those situations very well. And just talk to me a little bit about how quickly 
you know, your life changed in, you know, both in terms of what you were doing as a career, but also just going from, you know, Washington, D.C. to then sleeping on the floor of an office in, you know, what's now West, West LA and the kind of, as you said, you know, sort of feral, um, existence of, of touring with Black Flag at the time, like how, how did that feel? And, you know, what, 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 did you have any sense that like you were actually going to be in LA for the long term at that point? Well, uh, at, at that age, I didn't really, you know, I never left high school with a plan. Like, I'm going to do this. I just, you know, I'm just, I, I, I still don't really have a plan. I'm just, I just do stuff and I'm, you know, interested in things. So I just go after the shiny objects or my you know, curiosity. And so I came out here and like, wow, I'm the singer in my favorite band. I don't care where I am. You know, I, I get to do this. And suddenly my life went from, 40 to 60 hours of on your feet, repetitious minimum wage work to, you know, six hours of band practice a day, meals, you don't have to be very innovative to eat in those days. Eat, ate a lot of cold and congealing food off other people's plates at outdoor restaurants in those days. Just get used to, you know, outer edges of hamburgers and French fries that were hard to chew through because they, they were very cold. Um... But, you know, you're hungry enough. You just make it work. I'm not trying to complain. I, I'm fine. And so my my life became very different. I come from incredibly normal middle-class upbringing, like never missed a meal uh, when I lived with my parents. You know, many cans of SpaghettiOs went down my neck. And suddenly I'm in this very intense environment, and Black Flag's friends were those of those are a few of them are still alive now i see them every great once in a while but it was a crazy bunch of people like what's that oh this is heroin no whoa i you know i never seen heroin except in a movie which is just a prop anyway but that's real you're gonna do drugs <laughs> i was so like you know first you imagine your first day playing basketball, you're in the NBA. You're going to have to make some adjustments. And I I met people who were, they would sell their bodies for, for money. So I said, so you're a prostitute? Like, no, you know, I'm just getting by. Whoa. I mean, that's really intense information. And that was my reality unceasingly. So the learning curve for me, like my first 365 days in the band, summer, like July 81 to July 82. I aged an amazing amount of years where in that time I had seen a lot and people I had met when I got out to LA, some of them were dead, overdose, suicide, bad luck. And many were on drugs, heroin, speed, alcohol, and I met people who you know, killed people, people who died. And this was nothing like how I was raised. And so I, I adjusted, I acclimated, but it was a hell of a learning curve. And in many ways, I became my environment for better to survive or worse. Because, you know, I was around some pretty tough people and it definitely it made me into something. And when I would visit 
in Washington, D.C. with the people I grew up with, who I still see now and then, they're all amazing people. Um, they said, wow, you've really changed. You're, you're much different now. I'm like, what do you mean? They're like, I don't know, man. You're so, um, LA, especially that, you know, 1981 Hollywood was, you know, you'd pretty much stick to any surface. It was <laughs> really intense. And, um, the neighborhood we lived in, while not really dangerous, it was just kind of coated with, you know, just a, a layer of like, ugh, where now you can't even afford a blade of grass mm. in that neighborhood. It's so up, upscale, very, very nice. And so um, my life became very different, and I became very different, where the you didn't think about anything else but the, the band. Like you were, you know, that was what you did. And... I, I really, to this day, I think that's really a way to go where you lose all your friends and you just make friends with the music and you get along with the band members as best you can and you don't necessarily have to like them. I, I Members of Black Flag, we never got along all that well. We just realized we had something that was something and we should s stay in it. But we were never that cool to each other. And that ultimately, you know, had a, you know, it took its toll. But also, you know, you say you're a product of your environment, but also uh, you're not because you're, well, A, you're still alive. Um, B, you know, you never took drugs or drank. As much as people were doing that around you, you've always uh, not had an interest in that. So um, it's almost like, you know, taking the best of the environment, but also kind of forging your own path, you know, which I think is what you've done in all areas. Um, so, you know, there was also something you said, which I found really interesting, uh, which sort of relates to what you were saying about, you know, music being your friend, um, where you said musicians shouldn't play music, music plays musicians. And I think that's so true. And I think a lot of people wouldn't necessarily fully understand that. So just unpack that for, for the listeners. Well, many years ago, the great Sun Ra said, be careful, the music is listening, which is just one of the most profound things I've ever heard. I've repeated it on many occasions. And I just, I think he was right. And so this is just my opinion. It, it it goes no further than the length of my arm. But once you think you're playing music, that means the dragon has released you from its grip. And you, you can make your records, but they'll sound like, oh, I'm making a record. Uh, the record, the music is no longer compelling you to to play it. You're no longer owned by the music. And I think a lot of good bands, they have their times when the music owned them like they were nothing but the vessels for this crazy thing to come out of them. And for some people, it lasts longer than others. Others, for some people, it's an album. They made an album and or the album made them. And then they thought, oh, I've got the reins and I'm riding the horse. Nah, you're done. And it's just everything from talent to circumstance to how you orient take yourself into music. And this is just my opinion. It, it means nothing. And so once the music stops owning you, you know, forcing you 
to to have it come out of you and having its way with you, um, then you'll make another kind of record. And as an avid listener, I can tell you when the music has the musician and when the musician thinks he or she has the music. Because the truth is, um, you'll never have the music. It, none of it's any good. It's it's the 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 music is always stronger. It, it borders on magic. It borders on complete impossibility. Like you listen to a Coltrane record, you're like, how how the hell does anyone make something like that? Like that good? And you well, lots of reasons. You know, combination, time, place, whatever. But something else. The music's got you. And the music's better than humans. Music is pure. The only thing that gets in the way of good music is people. So, um, and I was in that sphere for quite a while. And um, it takes you, it can take you to some really crazy places where you apologize later. And I'm not at all trying to excuse bad behavior. And I'm not, you know, throwing TVs out windows or, or whatever else we just, that's just not in me. Um, the music made me into a bit of a monster. I'm not like assaulting, you know, people or whatever. It just, it just makes you kind of crazy where you just don't necessarily communicate with others all that well, not even your own bandmates. You're just maybe hard to be around because you're just nuts. That, that might be a way to explain it. Like, oh, that dude's crazy. Oh, he's in, he's in a band. Oh, yeah. But then you'd see the band play. You're like, well, they got that hour and a half, right? And so that, that's what I mean. And I think that can happen with painters or uh, writers where the thing has got you. Like for Truman Capote, In Cold Blood, that book had him. He didn't have it. You know, he just channeled the thing that was bigger than he was. It's a perfect book. And there's a lot of arguably perfect works of art out there, be it music or film or a part of a film, like acting or the direction. And I think it's when something bigger than you comes through you and you just have the guts to let it run its course. So after, after Black Flag disbanded, what made you stay in LA and how did work and you know your all your creative outputs sort of open up after that well uh black flag broke up in like july 1986 almost five years to the day i joined and within a few days i was already writing songs for what was going to be my first solo record and i recorded that in october and by april of 1987 by spring of the next year, I was in band practice with my new band. And by May of the next year, like 10 months after Black Flag broke up, I was on tour with a record in the shops, with a new lineup and new songs, not like going out and playing Black Flag songs, like this new new people, new band, new, new everything called the Rollins Band. And that went relentlessly from 1987 to like 2003, just like write, record, tour without, without pause for the most part. Also, I, I owned then and still own now my microscopic publishing company for my vanity project books. 
And so uh, when Black Flag broke up, I realized, okay, the training wheels are off. I am on my own. As much as what's going to happen today is what I make happen. Because there's no one saying band practices tomorrow at 4 p.m. I'm now calling the shots. I've got to assemble a band. And so I, I stayed in L.A. because that's where my two milk crates of broken stuff were. I, I just didn't think, oh, I'll, I'll go back home to Washington because that would be like conceding ground. And so I ultimately ended up moving to New Jersey, not with my property, all, you know, two milk crates of it, but, you know, sleeping bag and some clothes because my bandmates, uh, half of the band were living in New Jersey and the other guy in the band was one of my friends from my youth from Washington, D.C. So we migrated, Chris and I, to New Jersey because that's where we could have band practice. So I was a resident of Trenton, New Jersey on and off for years. And I really enjoyed my time there. Great, great place. Great people. And then later, my bandmates were like New Yorkers. And so I just moved to New York. Still had my place in Los Angeles. But I, I lived in an, on and off in New York through the 90s in the East Village in different, you know, rent by the month or rent by the year apartments. So I became quite a New Yorker in that, you know, I was there, you know, making records and really living in New York, which was really amazing, you know, just because it's so different. But I've always had my stuff out here from 1981 summer to two. 2020 summer and just you know obviously um you brought up Rollins band and outside of that incredible musical crew um it was sort of remarkable on a number of levels for combining you know raw bare bones rock with elements of jazz but then also these very self-aware lyrics um and you know was that something new for you like presenting this kind of real self-awareness in 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 a genre where it hadn't really existed, but also for you individually? Well, I wrote quite a few sets of lyrics in Black Flag. I mean, it was not my band. It would belong to the other guys, the guys who started it. But quite often, we were very prolific, and there'd be some songs that no one, none of the bosses had lyrics for. So they go, hey, you want to you wanna put lyrics on this? I'm like, yes, I'll take anything to try and, you know, make a song. And so... I learned songwriting from the members of Black Flag, and I, you know, started putting together lyrics. And then with my own band, I'm kind of the lyric writer. I mean, no one in the band offered, and I don't know how much I would have taken anyone's input in those days. And so I, be, you know, became this lyric writing, you know, machine where I'm always thinking, you know, song, 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 and ended up writing way more songs than ever came out, like fully finished, agonized over sets of lyrics. And they, they still sit, uh, you know, in the dark on my hard drive and probably better that way. But um, I just took that on. And I, I, you know, I have a high school you know, diploma somewhere. I, I barely got out of high school. I'm not really trained to do anything. And so I always figured, well, since I'm not really good at anything, I might as well, why shouldn't I try everything? And so at some point, someone said, hey, you want to be in a movie? I'm like, yeah, I'll try that. 
So I started being in the movies. Hey, you want to be on a TV show? Yeah. You want to do a voiceover on a commercial? Yeah, I'll try that. You want to write a thing for this magazine? A magazine article. Okay. And I ended up doing a lot of TV and film and lots of voiceover, everything, you know, animation, narrating, um, uh, audiobooks of, of my own work, hosting shows, uh, hosting documentaries, uh, write screenplays that actually get made into movies. And I, I, I'm still the guy from the ice cream store, in my mind. I'm still the 375 an hour guy who just says yes to stuff, or I come up with something on my own. Like, hey, I'll, I'll make a book about this, but I got to go travel to like 18 countries to get the information. Well, do the research, get the visas, hit the road. You know, along, that was a, a while ago, but um, that's been my life of like, well, let me try this. Or I got this crazy offer. Well, I better do it because what they don't understand is I have no aptitude for this whatsoever. Well, I'll just have to try really hard. And so I, that's been my life is just showing up for this stuff that I either invent or a situation, an opportunity comes up and I'm a crass opportunist. And I say, yeah, because life is short. You're, you're a bit younger than I am, but you know, as no doubt you found out, it goes really fast. And suddenly, you know, you stand up and everything hurts. <laughs> you're like, okay, so you better use it well. And, you know, I'm not telling anyone what, to, anyone what to do, but I think one should be brave. You know, you should be bold. I could have just ended up being one minimum wage job to another, which is not, I'm not putting that down. I'm just saying it might not have been nearly as inventive or have required the same amount of courage that the life I've had required. Because you must understand, I'm not a tough guy. I'm not a brave person. I'm a very nervous kind of fidgety, flinching person. And so for me to, you know, to do this or this or this, I'm like, okay, well, here we go. And I'm in a movie and I'm doing a scene with Al Pacino. Okay. And, and, and things like this have happened to me. Not because I'm anything great, just because, you know, I, I just went for it. And I encourage others in their own way maybe to, to give a version of that a try. Because you'll see that I'm right. 60 years of age, it, it feels like two, two semesters and like, wow, most of my life is behind me. I say, live eventfully and live as courageously as possible. Don't get hurt. But, you know, try to do things because it, it's, it's over pretty fast. Well, first, it keeps us alive. It keeps us vital. It keeps us out of our, you know, minds. And, um, you know, there's a wonderful quote from William Blake, um, stagnant water breeds reptiles of the mind. Uh, and, and I always think about that, you know, where have things got kind of stagnant or stuck and then just, you know, keep things moving. And, and also the idea of just creativity and it knowing no limits and it knowing no, you know, sort of linear categorizations or like, oh, you're a musician, so you've got to stay in this very narrow box. Um, so I kind of think it's both a way of staying inspired and vital, but also like 
just you know not getting caught in in these ridiculous limits of what you know what output should be um yeah i agree i mean and i uh, for myself i've benefited from not holding on like i'm not trying to be 20 not going to dye my hair or have a surgeon play with my face i'm not going to i'm going to go out and play the old songs cuz at 60 i can i'm feeling like you know i'm like nah i just do other stuff you know like you did all that so go do something else like you know just throw out the whole easel and the whole thing and like never paint again like go do that and again this is just for me and so i stopped doing things like really abruptly which has had you know more than one manager go what because they were doing pretty well with their commission like i stopped music i just stopped it with one phone call I called my manager. I said, I'm done with music. And he, you know, <laughs> no. I'm like, yep. He goes, why? I, goes, I, I got no more lyrics. There's no more toothpaste in the tube. Oh, we'll do a greatest hits tour. I, I go, I, I don't have any hits. And I don't want to be a human jukebox. That's like a summer I'll never get back. And the music, the music is listening. I'll go up there and act like I'm a jukebox. It'll, it'll, I'll betray the music and the audience. They'll be able to tell because it won't be real. So why not just go find some cold, dark water and just go, well, let's find out how deep this is and just jump in, see what happens. Well, you drown. Well, yeah, it ended on a question, you know, like, <laughs> but I, getting away from the opportunity to repeat has always benefited me. And thankfully, um, all of that like jumping and like finding out how hard the ground is when you get there is benefiting me right now because in this year 2020 my plans have changed so radically like crazy whole new day and um my manager has asked me or how do you feel about that i'm like i'm fine you know it's going to be what it's going to be and i said you know me i just I jump and wherever I land, that's the new thing, you know, put the cast on and limp forward. And so um, I like the idea of just like walking away from things, not in, you know, don't let people down, but when you're done with something, just be done. Mm -hmm. Don't turn into a cartoon of yourself, just move on. It takes guts, but from that, that kind of courageous, you know, departing, you know, from the clubhouse, a lot of a lot of good is exhilarating. It's like wow, you know. It's there's something to it that leads to creativity and inspiration, where you can be an inspiration engine for yourself. And you know, I live and work alone, primarily. I got really no one or nothing to inspire me but me. So I've got to come up with things to you know throw myself at, and walking away from something where you create this massive deficit like okay there's nothing to do today well okay the galley's clear let's fill it up with something let's go build a new ship so uh, this has always benefited me i guess it's just you know in a way being brave which does not come naturally to me that that's i guess what i'm trying to get across what music would you send into space uh the unknown pleasures album by joy division I think it's a, an astounding, perfect piece of work. And I, I think there's a lot of perfect albums out there in the world. I just uh, think if any other 
being out there could, you know, be able to somehow hear it. It would make them, I think, fascinated about Homo sapiens. Like, wow, what a thoughtful, interesting animal this, you know, Homo sapiens was. Like, what happened? <laughs> and maybe uh, the Unknown Pleasures album, which to me is just an extraordinary piece of work, um, maybe that would inspire some other being's curiosity to find out more. And I could probably come up with a handful of other records. I just find I've never heard a record like that. I've heard a lot of records or bands try to do that, what Joy Division did, but I think they really were their own thing. And that record is just, uh, it never, I've played it I don't know how many times, and every time I play it, I just kind of shake my head like, nope. I still don't understand how you just did what you did. And which track would you like to play now? Let's listen to I Remember Nothing. Perfect. So we're now going to take a listen to I Remember Nothing by Joy Division off the record Unknown Pleasures. So that was I Remember Nothing by Joy Division off the album Unknown Pleasures. And that was Henry Rollins' choice for the, the music, specifically the song from that album uh, that he would send into space. Um, and you were just saying that it is unique in what, in the feeling or what it conjures up or what's like precisely special about that record for you. It's like a mood between moods. It's like... um. I don't know if you've ever, you're a very perceptive person. You've no doubt seen how it looks outside during a, uh, an eclipse of the sun. Yeah. Where it's like the sun is wearing sunglasses. There's this weird, not sepia tone, but almost like a, a, a filter, like for your camera lens has been put on the sun where like everything looks kind of cool. Like the sun is wearing Ray-Bans or something. Um, we're like, what is that? Like, what's the sun doing? What's light doing? Shadows look different. I mean, I'd never look up, but I like being outside during an eclipse because everything, everything is different. That to me is the mood that Joy Division inspires in me. Like, what that? what is that mood? I can't tell you. But Joy Division music doesn't, there's no band that gets me to whatever that place is other than Joy Division. Like Kafka, Reading Kafka, there's just no other writing that puts me in that spot. And I, you know, I listen to a lot of music, and uh, but Joy Division is, is you know, it doesn't make me sad or happy. It just puts me like in Joy Division land, that rare light, that eclipse light. Like describe it. I don't know, man. It's just different. Well, can you paint it? No. Can you write about it? Nah. And some of the best music writing I've ever read are really good music journalists writing about Joy Division, where they can, you know, they can get their craft right up to the planet and kind of get in the orbit. Like John Savage's recent book uh, about Joy Division, uh, The Searing Light. Wow, what a read. It's so cool. 
and you know he used to see them and he he was he was there and um it's just a fascinating band you know i, I listened to their bootlegs the live performances i i no expert on the band i just never heard any anything like that and so it'd be an, an extremely interesting example of what music is and what it can do so when you you put it out into the world you know put it out of the world into space that might be an interesting idea but um unfortunately for me i have a lot of rules when it comes to listening to music i listen uh to season and light cycle i cannot listen to joy division until september and by the end of february i must stop listening to joy division so it's autumn into winter but no spring or summer no 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 so i have all these incoming joy division bootlegs that have come in the last few months and i i have to wait to listen to them i was looking at them last night like oh i can't wait but i will not put on a joy division record until then I must obey the rules. So have you got a lot of musical calendars like that? Oh, so many. Almost every band I listen to has a temperature light cycle uh, uh, rule, rule book attached to it, pretty much. Not for the radio show. I, I, I wouldn't deprive the listeners. Like this summer, they got some Joy Division, but because I, I can't torture them. Uh, but I can definitely starve myself out. But I wasn't playing the albums. I just, I, but I definitely put a song here, a song there into the playlist. But I have that with almost every single band I listen to. So on the subject of space, um, we found out recently we both share a love of Mylar. Can you tell me why you love Mylar? I like Mylar because it uh, preserves paper documents. And you've been to my place. You see how obsessed I am with documents and correspondence, you know, paper things. Because paper's fairly sturdy, but then again, it's fairly delicate. And if it's cheap paper, it will literally eat itself because of the chemicals, the acids inside the paper. And if you want to maintain paper, get it away from other pieces of paper because it will eat the other page. And get it into a safe, acid-free mylar environment. Posterity will thank you. <laughs> And so you rarely hear anyone say the M word. And when people do, I'm like, oh, you must know something. You just said Mylar. And no one would say Mylar just to say it. You know, it's if you use the word Mylar, you understand what it is. You just don't bump into that word. And so uh, I think one of the last emails I wrote to you, I said, P.S. Mylar! And so it is, a, it is a big part of my life. I have lots of uh, preservative um, things here, you know, pictures, uh, sleeves for records, for, for uh, LPs. So there's lots of preservative plastic uh, here to keep uh, history, you know, as you know, unstained as possible. And longevity and sustainability are a big deal to me because eventually I will keel over. And hopefully someone responsible will be taking care of all this cool stuff I have acquired so someone can get a kick out of it later. Or maybe it all goes into a dumpster. I won't be around. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, just as a very quick aside, I spent 
probably a very a good portion of my life investigating and researching and uh, sourcing mylar and then built a space chamber out of it um, with uh, using NASA-grade mylar. And so, no, I mean, I, I feel like in you know your vocabulary, there are certain words you say all the time, and that's, that's definitely up there. So it's always nice to meet a like-minded mylar appreciator. Um, well... You and I are somewhat like-minded. Me, I'm going to probably eat a can of soup tonight. You are going to reflect upon the time that you built a space chamber out of NASA-grade mylar. Because you, uh, I've never met anyone like you. <laughs> You're amazing to me. So um, you get the, uh, the NASA-grade. I get mine from university products through the, through the mail. So... They're both equally as as powerful. Um, so, you know, just sort of reflecting on, yeah, space and then just about to move into the sad part of the show where we imagine a world without Henry. Um, do, you, do you feel that you came into this world with a sense of a mission in any way? No, not at all. I'm just a, a random idiot just bumping into stuff. I'm just an atom ricocheting around, truly. Um when I get on a project, I, I must complete as best as I can. But past that, no, I, I you know I'm kind of at the third base of the proverbial run around the the bases of my life, and I still don't have a plan. I have plans, like I working on a book, working on this thing, trying to do that, but a plan? Yeah, keep eating, dodge the streetcars, you know, just keep on putting myself in, myself in situations where I can keep doing things, if that's a plan. Um, but no, I never thought there was anything out there for me. But you definitely followed something, like you followed some sort of, I don't know, voice or, you know, some, you know, there was something compelling you forward, it sounds like. Oh, maybe anger, dysfunction, my mental condition, just reacting to all of that. I think a certain extent, when I, as a young person, I inhaled a lot, you know, fear, pain, abuse, and you know, you, you, your lungs can only hold so much. At some point, well, the, here comes the pendulum, it's coming the other way. And a lot of my life was the exhale, the roar, if you will, you know, the release of the arrow. And the further back you pull, the more velocity you're going to get because you're angering the, the the bowstring and so a lot of my life was the the um exhale the, the that roar if you will and now um i still have that but it does not it's not my master as much as it used to be you know where i would you know say and do things like well that uh that bridge burned magnificently well that's that <laughs> and so um perhaps as an older guy I, I see that there's more ways to go. But at this point, I I really like to get up every day with some purpose. I don't like lying around. It's very depressing for me. It's re really, I, I'd rather, you know, come over to your house and like, hey, help me paint the garage. Fine. Thank you. So I had nothing on today. I, I, I don't want to do nothing. So now, you know, asking you the question, whether you've thought about it before or this was the first time, um, do you know the song that you would have at your memorial? Well, for the sake of answering 
your question? Sure. Let's put on War Pigs by Black Sabbath because it's just kind of a, it just cleans the clock. <laughs> you know, it, it, it just really, uh, you know, resets everything. It's such a, a fantastic piece of work. But uh, beyond that, um, I will eventually die. I hope there's no memorial. I mean, what control would I have as a dead guy? But um, if I had my way, I would be, the word is cremated. I prefer incinerated. I would be incinerated uh, at some place where it's done legally. Um, or, you know, uh, put me on a, a, a pyre. I, I've, I've been to a couple of uh, cremations, uh, outdoor cremations. They're fascinating to watch. Um, but it takes a while. It takes a long time. And they have to keep like pushing the body in, get make sure the hands and feet get in there. But um, I, I'd like to be professionally incinerated, where it's quick, painless, cheap. And I'd like the contents of the incineration chamber, the remains of me, you know, um, what's that left of the teeth, fillings, whatever doesn't completely go up. Just throw it out in the dumpster behind the incineration facility and be done. And that's it. No obituary. Just, you know, take the webpage down, <laughs> which is death. And just everyone move on. I mean, I, I have no interest in leaving any physical evidence of my being. But then on another idea, what if, and this is great. I've said this to my manager and she recoils at this idea, which makes me, you know, more emphatically put it, roll it out for her. So I like getting that reaction. Um, we incinerate me and we, we uh, parse me into hundreds and hundreds of small vials and attach them to strings of different colors and put me on henryrollins.com. And you can buy a little piece of me in like pink, pink string, blue, whatever your color. And um, you'll buy five of me and give them to your friends. Get Buy five of me and like s smash me with a hammer. Like, you know, like, or like sprinkle me into the soup and don't tell dad. Like, there you go, dad. Like, I hated that guy. Well, you just had him for lunch. Ha, 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 that was funny. And we can have some fun. Um, or take me to an interesting place and, like, you know, tap me out next to the, the, the Great Pyramid in Giza. Um, and so uh, that might be interesting and use all the money for some, you know, really cool organization. Like, you know, teen suicide or, or you know, helping people out. So we could have some fun. Where I would be everywhere, we could raise at least two or three hundred bucks, um, and maybe that might be a way to go. But I don't want to. I, I would hope. I hope that I will get incinerated, and the remains will be thrown out because I. I don't. I, I just don't want any ceremony or gathering after I die. I just want to be done and stop taking up space. But you can be magic dust, and you know everyone can sprinkle some Henry onto their ideas, and they would turn Do a into line, <laughs> chop out a line of me, and oh man, and and yeah, do a line of HR, a anything but a gathering, and like oh, he was my best friend. No, I wasn't. <laughs> he was a really great, great guy. No, he wasn't. <laughs> None of it's true. Okay, and now we're going to take a listen to War Pigs by Black Sabbath, which is Henry Rollins's choice of a track to have at his non-memorial. Sorcerer of 
death's construction In the fields of bodies burning As the war machine keeps turning Death and hatred to mankind That was War Pigs by Black Sabbath and that was the song that Henry chose when seriously pushed into a corner to choose a track that would be at his memorial. Um, but as you said, you know, no memorial needed, really. Um, have you thought, I mean, we also talked, I think, very briefly about being imprinted into vinyl. That could be pretty, pretty epic. Oh, yeah. You'd have to grind me up to like beyond talcum powder. Otherwise, it might be hard on your on your uh, needle. And you wouldn't want to, you know, wouldn't want it to cause harm. You don't want chunky vinyl, but maybe they could work it out. Yeah. Or maybe just put it, put it into the middle where you can like, oh, I can see him, but it's not going to ruin the fidelity of the musical experience. But he's in there, man. And, you know, your, your home, as you said, is kind of like a, is like a museum. You know, it's, you have so many incredible collections. Um, and it did make me think, obviously, you know, when you were saying about growing up with your mom and all these books, rare, you know, rare books and artworks, um, that must have kind of instilled something, you know, in you potentially at that age. Um, but how do you feel about leaving behind everything that you've sort of amassed over the years? Oh, well, I'd like to be like a one man, a poor man's Getty, where like, here's a lot of useful things. Like here's like rare records. Here's, you know, amazing original correspondence like maybe you can use this for a term paper maybe you have some unanswered question that something in my archives has or maybe this is just really cool to look at like wow the whole band signed that oh that's amazing um for all kinds of reasons i would hope that what i've acquired and continue to acquire would be of use even if it's just for enjoyment um maybe it has some kind of worth we can put it all in a building and make a, a great online resource. We're like, okay, um, we can't find this flyer. Oh, oh, it's here. Here it is. High res and the actual document is in Mylar. And it, it's like now 130 years old, but the dude kept one. Like, all right, now we know. Maybe that could be, or it could be an asset. That, that's the word I'm looking for, an asset. And you've always been super involved in, you know, campaigning, supporting causes, raising awareness around issues not being addressed. With everything going on in the world right now, what is your hope for humanity? Uh, That we can somehow vault over the curb high impediment to progress that is racism. I just don't don't understand it. Like, Like, how can you... Where'd you get that from? Like, how can you defend that point of view? Like, and why is that the hill you want to die on? And I just think Homo sapiens, you know, John Coltrane, uh, the, the Stooges, Joy Division, Fugazi, all these bands have proven that humans can do really cool things. Michelangelo proves that humans are up to, they can do some pretty neat stuff. Um, so why, why not aspire to that level of greatness and certainly racism, homophobia, misogyny, that kind of bigotry has no place. All you need to do is, it's not even a, a, a big hurdle in your life to get past that stuff. And I would love to think that maybe one day uh, homo sapiens collectively go, wow, uh, 
what were they thinking? It'd be like, you know, witch burning. Like, that's in, that's that's crazy. Yeah, well, stop doing that 600 years ago. Yeah, that and that that's like right up there with racism. What? Oh, read about it. They did what? And I would love to see racism turn into that. Mm. Um, and it's a, I don't think it's naivete. I, I think it can happen. And I think it's happening. I think this century, this is the make or break century for how humans either embrace science or don't. Because look at the world that you're living in summer 2020. Science is a way out of it. Maybe the way out of it. You know, unless you want a planet full of like deer and snakes and and wolves, which I think is fantastic. But you won't have any people. We'll just, you know, uh, too cool for school our way off the coil. Uh, science and education is the way forward. And I would love to see, you know, the vast majority of humans go, wow, there you go. And let's go. And stop killing each other. Stop mugging each other. Stop assaulting each other. Like, it's like there's a lot of records to listen to. And there's a lot of cool stuff to do and a lot of important things that need to be done. So let's train up and get out there and do it. And that would be my hope as to what Homo sapiens gets up to. But if we don't get this century right, I just don't think there'll be another one. Well, the earth and tons of critters will survive, but Homo sapiens existence will be vastly compromised if we don't get it right in this in this century. And coming to the end of your orange juice for the years, um, what is the record that you would pass on to the next generation? Uh, well, I, I think uh, the Raw Power album by the Stooges would be great just because it's such a no-holds-barred, scorched-earth uh, statement. I mean, it's, it's kind of a terrifying record. Yet it has these like really beautiful, emotionally available moments like uh, give me danger or uh, i need somebody but then there's you know the last song in the album is death trip <laughs> where iggy's just saying you know come alive on my death trip i'm like wow what does that mean and do i have the courage to go probably not and you know that record nearly killed that band you know as the, as they toured on it they they just destroyed themselves and they, you know, crawled home from the end of that tour. It fascinates me. And so uh, that would be a, a record to, to, to pass on to a, a, a future generation. Okay, so we're going to end with that in just a minute. Um, and what, you know, along with that, what words of advice would you pass on? Uh, don't be afraid. And that's a big blanket statement that works on so many levels. You know, don't be afraid of other people. Don't be afraid of other ways of living. You know, just, you know, because I, I spent a lot of my life with alarming amounts of insecurity and fear, and it did me no favors whatsoever. Didn't make me, I'm not like a racist or, or something. I don't have a past like that. It just, you know, it made a lot of the available world unavailable to me because I just, so much fear you just kind of ball up and like an armadillo mode and you just kind of go through life and not knowing there's so many flavors and so much great stuff out there and great people and great everything really more good things than bad and so if you can go at it 
without being, well, not being so afraid. Um, you, you never know. You might ha- actually have some good times. What is the thread that connects all of your orange juice for the air choices? Uh, the bravery and the humanity of all the tracks, you know, the vulnerability and the wildness of all of them. You know, there's just, uh, there's something that the, the music is seeking out something. And when you put it on, maybe it, it, it inspires you in some way. But um, all the music that we listen to, it's, it was, it's um, super inspiring to me. Like I hear any of those songs, I just get really, like I want to do stuff. And so I need that. You know, I, I need that kind of thing all the time. It's like a car that constantly needs oil. You know, I'll seize up. The engine will seize up if I don't have music. And so I, I need music way more than it ever needed me. And what is it that you hope to leave behind with the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do? Um, to show nervous young people who don't think much of themselves that they should try to do things, that they should not beat themselves up or harm themselves, and that they can, if if a screw-up like me can get anything done, they can get at least a thousand things done. And so I don't really have a lot of time for adults. We're set in our ways. We're just kind of awful <laughs> for the most part. So young people, it's not like I hang out and meet a lot of them, but I think about them when I make the radio show, and every once in a while when I do meet a young person, I just say, you know, just get out there, you know, travel. And I get the occasional email, well, I used to, uh, like, hey, man, I, I saw you speak one time, and I, I got so excited by what you were saying about the, you know, the time you went to Cambodia that I, I got a passport, and I've been to five countries, man. I'm like, well, there you go. You're making friends of the world. And, you know, you'll never, you'll never get sick of it. You'll just become more curious. It'll drive you crazy. But it's a good kind of crazy to be. And so that, that would be a message. Just to don't, you know, young people, don't harm yourself and don't be afraid. You know, just get out there in your own way. But, don't, don't, you know, you're all right. No matter who, what anyone else is telling you, um, take it from me. You're, you're, you're okay. And just before we finish with Search and Destroy by the Stooges from Raw Power, it's been such a pleasure chatting with you and discovering some of your musical DNA. So thank you for for taking the time. You got it. Anytime. Cheetah with a hat 